Welcome to The Thought Hackers, the show where you will learn how your mind works and discover how to change your thinking from leading experts and through inspiring stories. Good day, everyone. My name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia, and we are The Thought Hackers. With us today is a fellow by the name of Rick Schnabel, who refers to himself as the brain untrainer. Rick Schnabel is a world-class life coach trainer who has mastered magic. He's helped hundreds of his clients to diminish their issues in just hours and calms anxiety in minutes. He's a master of the brain's amygdala and weaves his magic to dramatically improve one thinking. With over 20,000 training and clinical coaching hours, he is a regular contributor to the media. Within Australia, he is one of just a handful of internationally recognized and nationally accredited trainers of life coaching, neurolinguistic programming, public speaking, and trainers training with Life Beyond Limits. He is also a best-selling author of four books, The Power of Beliefs, Seven Beliefs That Will Change Your Life, The Secrets of Creating a Life Beyond Limits, Roar, Courage, from Fear to Fearless, and The Life Coach Millionaires. Rick, I'd like to welcome you to the show. It's good to have you back. Thank you very much, Nathan and Hamish. Hi, Rick. Awesome. How are you? Very well. Yeah, so I've been looking at your, your profile here, and of course the number one thing that jumps out at me is the way that you build yourself. You call yourself the brain on trainer. So what exactly does that mean? It actually came um, quite a number of years ago from one of my students who I, I trained and then later on I did some coaching with him. And this particular gentleman had multiple sclerosis and he asked me a very courageous question. He said, do you think with everything you know, do you think it's possible to change my thinking and so therefore get me out of multiple sclerosis? And uh, thank God at that particular time I I didn't do any research on the internet. Uh, if I had, I would have seen so many blogs and articles and reports and white papers that all said that MS was incurable. Um, what happened was, uh, to cut a very long story short, we had about, I think it was about three or four sessions. And by the time we got to the fourth session, this particular gentleman didn't have the, uh, the symptoms of multiple sclerosis anymore. And uh, so he was, of course, very happy about the results. But he said to me in, at the end of this, he said, you're not uh, a coach. He said, you're a brain untrainer. <laughs> he said, you totally untrained my brain from the patterns, the thought patterns, the way that I was thinking and being. And uh, as a result of that, I am now free of this thing that used to hold me back. So... It, it kind of, um, I, I never labelled myself as a brain on trainer back then, um, but further down the track, I had someone else in, in, a, in a classroom who came up to me and said the same thing. And, and I really gave it some thought and I thought, well, our whole system is all about what we, what we do is we educate people. That's what we do. We educate, 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 educate. But the problem I realised with most people is we're putting all this new data and this new great material into a brain that has some terrible software running it. And, and it just crashes all the time. 
And so I realized that most of the work that I do is actually really not training. It's actually untraining people's brains. If you encounter, let's say you encounter somebody again, like with this person with MS or someone who's got a very severe limiting condition, potentially life-threatening, how would you begin to work with them? What would be the first thing that you would do? Okay. Uh, the, the very first thing that you would do, and, and I love this question because it actually puts a sequence to it. And, you know, we can throw many ideas down, but we really want to create the best recipe. We really need to have some ingredients and then sequence those ingredients so we get an outcome. And, and that's very much the coaching model. And so the very first thing that you need to do, and this might sound very basic, but the very first thing you do is find out a person's story and take that opportunity to create a level of relationship where you start to build some trust. Now, the truth of the matter is that every single person, whether they realize this or not, their number one value is avoiding death. So their number one value actually is safety. So we all want to feel safe around people. Now, the moment a person feels safe, you can actually start doing the work. If a person is skeptical, cynical, or fearful in any particular way, then it's quite difficult to guide that person to start thinking differently. Because if a person doesn't feel safe, what they will do is they will not think differently. They'll just keep wanting to replicate the same sort of thinking. The next thing that is really critical is to identify what is the actual problem. And uh, that might sound like an obvious question. However, most people find it difficult to answer it. For, for instance, someone might come to me and say, you know, I'm having challenges. I, I, I just feel like my self-esteem is really, really low. So a natural question to ask is how is that a problem for you? Now, that might uh, offend some, someone in that they might say, well, you know, I just told you, you know, I have low self-esteem. Yeah, and now you're asking me, how is that a problem? It's a huge problem. But until a person understands the value of their problem, that is the price that they're paying for having the problem, what they're not getting, what they are getting that they don't want. And so we need to develop a very good understanding of what is the actual problem. So someone with self-esteem might say, well, the problem is, you know, I haven't had a job for six years because I don't have the courage to go and get a job. Now we're starting to get to some specifics. So um, the, the thing that's really key and important when you're working with a client is it's something that we call chunking. And quite often what we do is we chunk problems in a, in, in a big picture way, such as the person says, I want to be happy. So that's that's chunked right up. Um, it's big picture. It's There's no detail in that. We don't know what they need to do to be happy. We don't know what they need to feel. We don't need, we don't know what they need to see or hear. And so from that perspective, the next thing we need to do is chunk exactly the outcome and the problem in, in a very detailed way. So, so we understand it and so does the client. So we both have this full depth of knowledge as to what is the specific outcome because the truth is 
how do people know when they're happy, for example? Well, you know, happy for most people is whimsical. You know, it's temporary. It's uh, fleeting. So what we want to know is, for example, someone might say, I would be happy if I got a job. So it's very simple to measure that outcome because now we know we're aiming to get this person to a job, not happy, but to a job. And when they get the job, they will be happy. So chunking is definitely appropriate. And at this point, we haven't really changed anything. We haven't really solved the problem. Now we've got to work out what is the cause of the unhappy or what is the cause of the problem. And typically, one thing that I find with regularity is uh, we do a particular process with many of our clients. Well, we call it timeline. It's a, it's a therapy that came out of neuro-linguistic programming. And um, it, it's the one technique that I say to my coaches, the people that I train as coaches, please, guys, master this. This is going to be one tool you will use again and again. So typically... It's about going back into the past and finding out what was the event or events that caused, for example, trauma or caused some emotional scarring or caused uh, a decisive pattern that keeps perpetuating the problem and find out what that is. And the next thing that is really important to do is when your client can actually see a benefit of having had that experience, then it starts to rewire the brain. For example, and I'll, I'll use myself as an example here. Um, when I was a child, I was bullied a lot. And so that became a problem. That became a pattern. That became a whole bunch of trauma. Um, I was in fairly severe fights. And... Uh, and so from that, I, I really started fearing school. Uh, I started fearing particular people who looked a certain way, and I became incredibly fearful. So when uh, I had a coach that got me out of that trauma, what happened was the coach got me back to that trauma, and, and I realized there was a value that I got from being bullied. And that was that I got pretty good at thinking very quickly on my feet. And I got pretty good at being able to work with people to turn their behavior around. So I was kind of learning how to be a coach when I was being bullied at school. And when I realized this, I all of a sudden discovered that this is kind of one of my skills that uh, I rely on so much as I teach people and certainly as I coach people too. So what I discovered was that that problem actually had a silver lining. You know, it, yeah. it, it, had a, it had a great lesson in it. Now, when you get to that point and a person in trauma, you know, without getting coaching or without getting any sort of support, will keep going back to their problems, thinking their problems. But uh, when you start working deeply to find this, you know, the value that you got from the, the event, from the trauma, from the problems, then what you typically will get is the brain will firstly be confused. It will go back to that event and it's not sure whether it was a bad event or a good event. 
So as a coach, there are particular techniques you use to amplify the value, the good value, and negate and diminish the lesser value. And then the brain goes back to those events and it cannot feel that trauma anymore. And, and so what you've done, you haven't gotten rid of the trauma. What you've gotten rid of is how the brain encodes that event. So that event is no longer a traumatic event. It's actually an educational event. Does that Rick, make sense? Yeah. Rick, I was just where you're yeah, leading with all course. that and just with what Nathan uh, brought into your introduction where it's you know, master of the brain's amygdala. How does the amygdala play a part in all this? Well, the amygdala is, you know, one of the oldest parts of our brain and, you know, and, you know, thoughts and memories are actually immature. Um, they're not sophisticated. They're not mature. They, they respond and react and release chemicals into our, into our system, you know, hormones and all sorts of chem chemistry that has us feeling a certain way. And what people do is we start believing in those feelings. For instance, the amygdala, like you've often heard, you know, the, the fight and flight analogy, yep. Yep. you know, and, and also the fawn analogy, um, you know, or, or the food and the family analogy, um, you know, which are the prime functions as to what the amygdala does. And, you know, there are some things that we do very irrationally you know, because we are working with a part of our brain, as I say, that's very immature. It doesn't really think, it acts. And uh, so we get these feelings that run through our body when, we, when, when the amygdala is triggered. And before we know it, we're looking with a rational mind thinking, why did I do that? Mm. Why did I just shut up? Why did I run away? Why did I hide? You know, why did I cower? And, and the reason for that is largely because what we've got is we've stimulated the amygdala and memories will do this, trauma will do this. Um, you know, and yeah. the, more, like, the more fearful we are, the more activity is going on in the amygdala. Yes. The less fearful we are, the more activity happens in the prefrontal cortex of the, of the brain. Um, so... You know, if we really want to think things through, we're in the prefrontal cortex. If we find ourselves acting irrationally and ridiculously, we're probably in the amygdala. Yep. Nice. And, and you know, yes, really good understanding for you know, a lot of the listeners um, who have, you know, probably in, in, lived through trauma, but equally for the people who are supporting and living with these people with living through trauma, it's really important to understand this stuff and how, it, how the thinking operates because, you know, as, as people not live, as family members or people or friends not living with trauma but seeing other people in it, they just don't understand the process of what's happening. That's right, because they're in their emotions. Hmm. And, you know, like, like a trauma sufferer uh, and a non-trauma person having a conversation, the, the person who's not in a, in a traumatic reaction to the chemistry that's firing off in their brain will be listening to the trauma sufferer. And there will be part of their internal dialogue saying things like, I can't believe that they're saying this. Yes. I can't believe they, they can't see this or yep. they can't see that. And, and that makes sense. I mean, 
It's really strange in many ways having this conversation because prior to these many sessions I had with Hamish, I was dealing with all these after effects of bullying, which some classify as PTSD. And then one day after several months of working with Hamish, it suddenly vanished. It just stopped. Yeah. And the major symptoms of all of this stuff, I, I knew something major had happened. I didn't know what it was until Hamish and I spoke about 10 days later. And we kind of lumped it all under the category of PTSD. But I realized that all the major problems that I had that drove me nuts m most of my life were suddenly no longer there. And and when you were talking about earlier, like uh, you have two people who come from trauma and one who doesn't. I remember sitting in a cafe with a woman who had severe trauma and PTSD after a lifetime of alcoholism and so on. We were sitting in this cafe, and there was a really loud noise from one of the, the um, one of the people there. She had turned on a blender to crush ice. This woman visibly, and I, and what struck me about the whole situation was that she visibly, they're like a block. It was just really interesting that such a, a change like that uh, could occur. Yeah, well, see that we we know that as essentially a trigger, and you know many trauma sufferers will have specific triggers. Um, I, I've worked with you know Vietnam veterans, and uh, you know, and you know, it's everything's safe. They're at a barbecue. They're you know, <laughs> in, in, in the protection of a home with friends. But, you know, just that trigger is so powerful that it has them automatically, without thinking, launching back into their traumatic responses. And, you know, I mean, I think in truth, everyone has had some level of trauma, either, you know, primary trauma being the trauma that we've experienced ourselves, or even secondary trauma by, you know, watching a horror movie or hearing mm. a story about a, a good friend in an mm. accident. And um, and I know that, that there are certain triggers that go off. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I had an experience. Now, this was not a massive traumatic experience, but uh, I went surfing uh, one evening uh, just a little bit too late. It was getting too close to dark and the surf was quite big. And I paddled quite furiously to get through the, you know, these big waves. And uh, I paddled just a little bit too hard. And, and I got caught in a current and it started taking me out to sea. And uh, I was now, people who were in the ocean surfing had left. And so I was the only one out there and it was now getting dark. And uh, I was paddling my heart out. I'd been paddling for, you know, over an hour to try to get to shore and it just worked nothing was working now there was also a report at the time of a few great whites in the area and uh so mm. i started thinking about the sharks <laughs> i i started thinking about the fact that no one no one knew i was out there and i thought there's either you know looking at the evidence around me at the at the time a my arms are getting tired <coughs> b I was still being taken out to sea. I was almost a kilometre offshore. Um, the waves, uh, there was no way I was going to catch a wave because they were about 600 metres in front of me. And, uh, and, and I started to have a bit of a panic. Um, I started to think, 
oh my god uh i'm just going to get taken out to sea or i'm going to get taken by a shark or i'm going to freeze or um you know get hypothermia but uh and i had this panic and and i noticed that the moment i did my arms hurt more my energy diminished further and then i thought wait a minute come on you know based on everything you know you know that this is not the right response to this situation and i thought you're either going to give up or you're going to you know make a decision to keep going so i decided not to give up because i could feel myself thinking that way i i almost felt like crying you know that uh, desperate moment when there's nothing else you Mm -hmm. can do and you just feel like you just want to bawl your eyes out and uh so I decided to just dig in and uh, it was a moment of faith. I decided the only thing to do was to pray. And, uh, you know, as as fate would have it, uh, a massive wave appeared out of nowhere and uh, it carried me back to shore. (laughs) But but the thing is that um, now when I surf, whenever those conditions become a little bit similar, such as I can feel myself being pulled away from shore you know, I feel this immediate uh, sense of panic that comes into my body, but I know that, of course, there's nothing to be worried about. Mm. Um, so, so I did some coaching around it, got some coaching around it, and uh, and you know, got in and disrupted that pattern and untrained my brain of this old fear pattern, and uh, it hasn't appeared since. Mm. You know, like today going surfing yeah. was, was the same experience. There was a big rip and I was being taken out to sea again, you know, today, but I didn't have that same pattern coming out. Yep. And really that's a good, good way to think of the brain. It is really designed to take on patterns really, really quickly. Patterns that are both good and bad for us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And more often, and more often than not, we take on patterns that are not good for us, and we don't, because so many people don't have an understanding of how the mind works, they don't realize what's happening, and then yeah. they wonder why they wind up in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think, for example, you know, one of the greatest things that could ever enter into our education system is, you know, a, a program that says, "How does your brain work?" And I don't mean what chemicals fire off when. Yeah. I mean. How do you get results? How do you make your brain do what you want it to do? Mm. Yep. Yeah. Well, there's something that came up that we were we were chatting about it earlier, which is all about trauma, and and so of course, in terms of our audience, we we talk about trauma quite a bit and how people have passed through it, come out the other side, and are thriving. But the thing that came up was this question: is what is the biggest myth that exists in trauma? I think the the biggest myth that exists in trauma is that there are many practitioners out there that will tell a person who is in trauma that that's it. They've got to deal with it for the rest of their lives. It's just something that they've got to manage. Yeah. And I think that's bullshit. Yeah. I, I think that <laughs> I couldn't is agree more. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. Bullshit. Um, I have worked with people in very severe situations that, you know, many practitioners gave up on them. Um, You know, I find that a lot of the people who come to see me are the people who've been to see a lot of people, you know, for years and years and years and just haven't been able to get through it. And um, 
you know, there, there was a guy, for example, uh, who had depression um, that I, is coming to mind at the moment. And uh, he had depression for six years, medicated for four of those, was told that he would always be depressed, you know, that this would be something that he needed to manage. And uh, he came into a session and I said to him, you know, do you want to get rid of this today? And he looked at me and he looked with this really confused look and, and a little bit insulted. <laughs> and uh, and he said, wait a minute. He said, you obviously haven't read the details of my case history. And I said. And they what? all say that. They yes, all sir. say that. They do. And, uh, and I said to him, okay, well, obviously the first thing that we've got to do is we've got to change your belief that because a problem lasts for six years, that it's going to take years, if not, if ever, to move. And that's BS. It's crap. Mm. And uh, we worked together. Uh, I, I have to admit, I extended the session and we went for almost three hours. Uh, but I was, wow. I was determined. I was going to move it. And we did. And he has never had depression ever since. It was one three-hour session that we had and it, and it went. Mm. But the thing that we have to understand is how, how do people actually become who they are? And the most important element of that is that we have a thing called identity. And that identity, we wake up with it every morning. We have in our heads a picture of ourselves and to the detail as to are we, do we wake up with a frown, do we wake up with a smile, or do we wake up with a calm look on our face? And we will replicate that every single morning. And equally, there are people around us, family, friends, others, who essentially tell us who we are, and we, of course, believe most of them. And then what happens is we have a job, and we show up for that job, identifying with that job. Um, of course, we all know the moment that job disappears is we lose part of our identity. And mm -hmm. so so what we have is we have many elements that, that prove to us who we are because we made a decision a long time ago as to who we are. This was equally, um, as, as the myth that I shared with you earlier, this is equally a big myth. You know, who you are is, is crap. Who you are was just made up in your head at some point in your life. And you could be somebody else, but you but the problem is most of us don't like lying. And and most of us want to be congruent to who we think we are. So what we'll do is we, we will sacrifice our incomes, we'll sacrifice our relationships, we'll sacrifice our communications, we'll sacrifice so much opportunity by continually pretending that we are the person that we have decided we were back when we were six years old or seven years old. Yep. So when you think about it from a traumatic uh, opportunity is there's got to become a time you know, I mean, Nathan, you were talking earlier about when you did some work with Hamish and you had trauma and then, you know, for most of your life and then it kind of magically disappeared. But the most critical thing that happened in that moment is you had to redefine your identity or hold on to your old identity and suck it all back. You know, so there, there is an element of where we have to re-identify with ourselves. That's a really important key if we're transforming ourselves. Yeah. 
it's it's a, it's a really interesting statement because you know in in working with this group that we've had to do with PTSD, people were saying, well, who am I going to be once this problem ends? Mm -hmm. And my comment to them many times is who you've always been under the mental noise. There's, a, yes. there's an identity that you have, even if you can't remember it, it's going to be there. And the reason I was able to say it is because of what happened to me is because, and I didn't know this until it happened. And when it ended, I, for lack of a better description, I felt completely fine. I felt like, my vision of what a normal person would be like. And shouldn't, did I have stress? Sure. Did I have other problems? Sure. But it wasn't the trauma of before. It wasn't the all this identity and all this crap that went along with it. It just went poof and it was gone. And then the other interesting thing that happened is like watching reenactments to do with the types of trauma that I'd been through. And I watched it and I felt it. And there were two major things that happened when I was watching the reenactments. And the first thing was, oh, so this is what it used to feel like because I'd forgotten, which was quite amazing by itself. And the second thing was, I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. And I did. <laughs> and then, you know, there was, there was a guy in one of these uh, PTSD groups who was trying to put me down saying, you know, I felt I'd recovered and I watched some reenactments and screamed the house down. But I want to hear from Nathan here. And I well, that's where we part company. And then I related the story I just did. And the poor guy didn't know what to do. He, he kind of vanished. <laughs> what could he do? But this thing with the trauma is, uh, until this thing happened with ha Hamish, I would never have believed that it was actually possible to become free of it. But the thing for me, and maybe some other people can relate, those who will be listening to this, is that there was something inside me that was driving me that would not let me go, that would not accept that I could not become free of it. This one psychologist, also my spiritual teacher, said to me, that because you have a history of depression, you've got a genetic thing to depression, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I refuse to accept it. And the reason I refuse to accept it is because he was like giving me out in a way that, oh, well, if you get depressed, it's genetic and there's, well, tough, tough shit, right? And I was yeah. really thoroughly annoyed with him. And I said, I refuse to believe this because in my opinion and experience, my depression is environmental. This is stuff that I learned. I didn't come into the world with, I'm depressed. I learned it from my environment. And that's where we, we had quite a bit of a scrap over that. But I stuck to my guns and ultimately I was right. You know, what you were relating to there, Nathan, is, is, is so true. I mean, you know, you, your podcast here is a thought hackers, you know, so yeah. what need, needs to happen in order for a person to transform and become ideally that person that they truly want to be, they have to get in there and hack away at their thoughts. And, you know, one of the techniques that we often use as coaches is we interrupt patterns. We disturb and disrupt the pattern to get a person to get completely out of that behavior. Um, a, a classic one, <laughs> probably the most animated I've ever seen, was a woman. Uh, I did a uh, an event in Melbourne, uh, which we call the Raw Courage Workshop. And uh, I wanted to demonstrate in this workshop how quickly you could change. And uh, I asked the audience, was there someone in the audience that has a real negative response 
to some particular thing and you could call that a phobia you know an extreme phobia and i certainly uh i certainly uh, earned my income that particular day this particular <laughs> woman volunteered she um she had this issue where she um, she just feared mice so it sounded pretty tame but the moment she started talking about it you could almost see that first of all you know the the, the blood uh cells underneath her skin started erupting there was more activity in her face you could see her face going you know darker and darker and redder and redder and uh and then she started getting nervous twitchy she started tapping her foot quite wildly and uh, and i thought this woman's going to be a great demonstration anyway she got up and we did this technique and the first thing that you've got to do to get rid of a phobia is you've got to get the person to relive it to re-experience it in a safe environment. Then what you do is you isolate the steps exactly in, in micro, micro movements as far as how her brain is going through and building this phobia. Now, this woman, by the time she recollected the event, she was almost ready to run out of the room. She was shaking. She was sweating profusely. Um, we had to give her water because her mouth had dried right up. And uh, we got her through this process. And it took, I think, a good 15 minutes to get her out of this process. It's some, it, this process usually takes about five to 10 minutes. But it was 15. It could have even been 20. And uh, just watching her, even though there were no mice anywhere in that room, she was reacting as if there were. So... It's quite easy to understand that how our brain works is that it can only work in how we communicate to ourselves. It sees things, hears things, feels things, and we say things to ourselves. We smell things, we taste things. So it's our senses. Now, our senses make sense to us and we believe them. And because we believe them so vehemently that it becomes like a real experience, even though there wasn't a mouse in the room at all. And after the 20 minutes or whatever it was, she, I asked her, I said, if I had a mouse on my hand, how would you feel about that? Now, prior, she would have leapt off the chair. She just looked at my hand and, and she, she looked at me as if I was an idiot. You know, said, come on, you know, why would you, why would you react if, you know, if you just had this tiny little mouse in your hand? Yet prior to that, her whole response was quite, you know, irrational. Now, you know, I think that's the thing that I really want people to understand is that, however, you know, we believe in our feelings more than we believe in our thinking. And we can think until the cows come home that, you know, we're a different person, but we keep showing up as the person we feel we are. Mm. So the feelings are, are lifted littered with the you know the 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 biochemistry that's running through our body and it, it has us believing in our biochemistry so we have to go through processes and in truth anyone by, by the way anyone who's listening to this right now that hasn't done anything about your trauma or your issues or your problems and i mean seen somebody who actually is an expert who can help them to get out of it, you're kidding yourself. 
you're going to be stuck in this pattern for most of your life until you actually work with someone who knows how to get you out of these patterns and these programs. And, you know, I think the most important thing that they could do, it's really counterintuitive, unfortunately, because it's the last thing that anyone who has trauma wants to do. Let's be honest. Um, as I said earlier, the first thing they want is they want safety. So it is really important that that they remain safe. So the last thing they're going to do is make themselves vulnerable by working with someone. It's counterintuitive, but I highly recommend that people do. Mm. Work with someone and then get rid of the trauma, just like you, Nathan. You know, it'll go poof. And and you'll think, boy, where did that go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, there, and there's another story I want to share about that because um, you were talking about the the uh, phobia, and my major phobia was of big dogs, specifically German shepherds. And I wound up being offered a house sitting opportunity. I took it up, and I wound up coming down to Puerto Vallarta. Uh, was there for a while, and then the householder decided to hold a party. Well, a couple of people showed up with a dog. The dog was what they call a king shepherd, the biggest kind of German shepherd that you could ever freaking imagine. And this is what I was facing, and I was freaking a bit and trying not to. And I had done the fast phobia cure on myself years before, and I managed to decrease a lot of my fear by quite a bit, but I still had it talked with Hamish about it, and he said, you got to run through it again, uh, which I did, and it dropped quite a bit, but I was still really wary around the dog. And then one day something happened. The dog started to come into the house, and I looked at the dog, and I said, out, and the dog turned around and left. And, <laughs> and I thought, oh, you must be fucking kidding me. <laughs> and, and then it happened again the next day, the dog was coming into the house where it wasn't supposed to be, and I said, stop. And then I pointed my finger in, at, at the outside, and I said, out. And the dog went out. And then I followed the dog and said, out, into the garden. And the dog went right out into the garden, and I closed the gate. I thought, you're fucking kidding me. It happened again. And what's been happening in recent years is I've discovered that I have an affinity with certain dogs and cats where they like me and they listen to me and they will follow voice commands. And uh, another time a friend of mine was dog sitting, this little dog, and the dog liked me more than my friend. And my friend said, Suki likes, me, Suki likes you more than me. And I'm going, I know. And the dog would follow all these voice commands. And when that happened with that King Shepherd, my fear just went poof. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's just so amazing. And then afterwards, I was in a session with uh, the woman, uh, she and her husband owned this dog, her name is Gala. We were in the front corridor, and she was trying to get the dog to do something, and the dog wouldn't respond. And I was sitting, standing right beside the dog, and I gave the command, and the dog instantly obeyed. And she looked at me, and she said, how the hell did you do that? <laughs> so it was really quite funny. Well, I, I think the thing that's so valuable in moments like that is these moments make you feel very good about yourself. These moments make you feel like you're special, whereas when, we, when we're buying into our stories and we're buying into the rubbish that we yeah. tell ourselves when, when we're in a problem, we're anything but special. Yeah. You know, in, in fact, all we have is special needs. 
And so from yeah. your perspective, like when, when you really had that moment, Nathan, you know, when, when you got to that point, you would have felt amazing about yourself, wouldn't you? Yeah, I was just absolutely astonished. I mean, here I am with the biggest dog that I've ever, one of the biggest dogs, and it's a German Shepherd, which was a dog that attacked me. And all of a sudden, I'm standing with the dog, and I have this realization, oh my God, the dog is treating me like the alpha dog. <laughs> that I'm I'm the one in charge, and that she is subservient. And after that, I was able to go up to her and run my hands through her fur, which was incredibly soft, and and everything changed. It was just <laughs> like magic. Just yeah, incredible. See. And those people, and the a postscript to it is those people, they became really good friends of mine, and they want me to come and visit them. And it's like, okay, I can do that. Before, I would have shied away from it like the plague. But now, no, I can do that. Sure. That, that, I mean, that's exceptional when you turn a negative charge into your in charge. And, you know, ultimately, one thing I, I like to do from time to time is you know, I'm, I, I think everyone is spiritual. Um, and when I tap into my spiritual self, there, there was one belief that really helped me enormously. Um, what, and, and that was the belief that uh, I, I think that death is an illusion. And so if death is an illusion, therefore, there should be nothing that you fear. Because ultimately, most of us really fear death in some particular way. And of course, we, we flock to safety. But when you get to a point where, where you think that really all life is actually doing, it's actually bringing dogs into your life to prove to you that you're courageous, bringing trauma into your life, proving that you can self-heal bringing, you know, all sorts of tragedy into your life, proving that you can rise above it. And I think the worst thing that could ever happen to us is if we were all blissfully happy every single day of our lives. I think we would all turn into morons. I, Rick, I think they're great thoughts to sort of wrap up and sort of, you know, leave people with that yeah. thing. That's, um... One big thing I've got from you, Rick, is, you know, really that, um, you know the myth around this, the the stories that we're told, the beliefs that we've got had uh, people are, are created in society that you know, and you're going to live with this for the rest of your life and just keep taking the medication. It's absolute bullshit. You know, you started off with your story about the multiple sclerosis client who three sessions. You know, it's I've had similar things with with Nathan and other clients, three or four sessions, and that's what. We, but when we tell people this, it's you know, it is a hard thing to believe, but. Um, you know, the myths around yeah. there, there's a lot of bullshit out there that needs to be... Yeah. Yep. Earlier, the question that you asked me about, you know, what is the process that you can take people through, one of the, one of the most key elements of helping a person to go from trauma to no trauma, going from problem to no problem, is essentially getting a person out of victim mode or blame Agreed. mode. So... A person, they can't transform if they're blaming everybody for, for their plight. They can't transform if they're a victim to a whole heap of persecutors or one persecutor. <laughs> yep. So we've got to get to a point where we become the lions of our own lives, you know, the, the courageous ones. And that, you, know, you, <laughs> you, can't, you, can't be, you can't be courageous and be, 
you know, fearful at the same time. Therefore, you can't be transformed and a victim at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, the victim, those different things that people use to keep themselves stuck. Yeah. They've got to get to a point where whatever that point is, where they're willing to take a risk, whatever that risk is. Or when the pain of where they are becomes so terrible that they can't stand it anymore, that's often a pivotal point I've seen. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, well, it's, it's very clear to me that we keep talking, and I, I know that we will in, in a, yet another interview, because I know for sure I'd like to have you back. And, uh, Thank you, Mike. Well, oh, my pleasure, of course. So anyway, be, before we close today, um, is there something that you would like to offer to our, our listeners that they could use to help them improve their lives? Actually, there, there is. Uh, there's a... There's a program that uh, we created a number of years ago that uh, we've had so many people over the years who have asked me, you know, can I come to America? Can I come here? Can I come there? And, of course, I can't be in all these places, you know, all the time. So what we did is we created a program called the Rich Mind, Rich Life Program. And the, the whole intention of this program is really to help people to become richer in their thinking. So it's a program that starts to challenge people on a daily basis, and it's with videos. Uh, equally, there are audios that you download that you can listen to at night, and many of these audios help to really settle people's minds, calm them down, make them feel more confident, more resourceful. And so from this... I felt that, you know, typically 30 days would have been enough to do the program, but I really wanted to make sure that it changed the way people think. And we've had thousands of people now who have come through this program. Now, um, this program, uh, we, we sell this program for $497 online. And I, I know I've spoken with you that there are a lot of people out there that are really hurting. And I want to make this a contribution to those people. So I'm going to offer it to your listeners completely free. And uh, I'll make sure that you've got a link and they just click on that link. Um, there's an activation form. Once they click on that button, it activates the, uh, the Rich Mind program. And every single day, you're going to get something new. And every single day is going to be another step to improve and richen up people's thinking so i think that would be the Wonderful. the thing that i would like to give most thank you thank you so much yeah. rick it's, it's great having you on the show great talking about all of this stuff great being really frank and blunt and clear <laughs> so and, yeah and well i mean bluntness <laughs> and educational all of the above and and entertaining so thank you anyway thank you guys uh, um, yeah, I, I think, my pleasure. I think, you know, it's it's great to be given the opportunity to get out there and, you know, meet with some new people that you've never met with before. Mm. And I know there are some people listening that, you know, I hope that the information has helped them to make a decision about something and do something new so that, you know, their pain, their problem vanishes, disappears. Yep. And until they do something 
it's just going to stay there. So I just really hope that today it's really encouraged someone, mm. you know, and encourage is a really important word. It's that courage part that's really, really important. On that, on that so note, I mean, looking at the, the four books that you've, uh, you've written, Rick, is there one that you would, on what you've spoken about today, one that you would recommend to as a further resource to help people that they could purchase somewhere online? Or Actually, I think for this audience, I think the best book uh, for them to read would be Raw Courage, which okay. Raw, by the way, is spelled R-O-A-R, and uh, as raw in the lion. And um, I think that there is some really good material in that that's really going to help people to understand how to actually get rid of some of those fear patterns and some of those programs. And there's a few techniques in that book as well to help people to, you know, get more courageous and therefore create the life that that, that was really intended for them. Excellent, and they can get purchase that. We'll yeah. put it. We'll put a link on the on the podcast on the show notes. But that will be through Amazon, or yeah, you can yep. find it on Amazon. Depending on where you are in the world, you can purchase it. It's mainly in America um, as a as a printed book, but you can always get it on Amazon. Yep. And I'm pretty sure there's a website called rawcourage.com. Okay, we'll put that up as well. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. All right, thank you, Rick. Thank you, guys. Right, I really appreciated your time. Uh, and yours as well, Rick. So for those of you who have been listening to us on this podcast, thank you for being here. If uh, you have any questions about what we're talking about, feel free to send them to us, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. My name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston. Our guest has been Rick Schnabel, and we are the Thought Hackers. See you next time. You've been listening to The Thought Hackers. Make sure you subscribe and get each new episode emailed straight to you so you don't miss a show. And have a look at our resources page where you will find programs, audios and books that will create change in your thoughts.